0: There's a phrase, a question that's uh, about to come up, I hope. Um, (laughs) There it is. What's in a name? Question, as you'll surely know, being uh, great literary uh, experts and so on, uh, from Romeo and Juliet. Asked by Juliet in that play, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And it's true when you think about it. If what we know as a rose had happened to be called a turnip, it would still look as beautiful and smell as nice, wouldn't it? Whatever the name was. And in the play, Romeo might be a Montague, but she wasn't in love with his name, but with him as a person. She meant there isn't anything in a name. But sometimes there is a lot in a name. And in the Bible, you know how there are names that mean something. We think of Jesus giving Simon the name Peter, which means a rock. Or Paul referring to Onesimus as a useful person, and that's exactly what that word actually means. And of course, there was the angelic message that said you shall call his name Jesus, which means saviour because he will save his people from their sins. And this morning, I want to take up simply the word Christian. From Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it is, the last words that we read in that passage of Scripture, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I I believe that uh, Ivor plans to go on to the subject of making disciples in the next uh, little while, And I thought, well, today let's just think of that first name, the name Christian. It probably wouldn't be uh, surprising to many to know that the word Christian isn't actually the main Bible word for followers of Christ. The main word is saints. That's the word uh, not in the way that we usually use that word saint when we refer to, you know, St. Johnston or St. Mirren. Or for that matter to uh, people canonised by the church as saints and all the rest of it. And in fact it's often occurred to me that I don't think Paul would be particularly chuffed if uh, the scripture reading were introduced by saying this is from the writings of the Apostle Paul. Or, or Saint Paul rather. Just Paul the Apostle. And uh, actually it's saint that is the main word as I say. But the word Christian is surprisingly found only three times in the whole of the Bible. Here we have in Acts 11:26 26, the first use of the term. And then if you remember later on, the, in, there was the sarcastic use of the name by King Agrippa with the jibe when he said to Paul, you'll be making me a Christian if you go on any further. And then uh, thirdly, in First Peter chapter 4, Where verse 15 says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, it says there, verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now it's not my subject this morning, but I I believe that verse may come to have a lot more force for us in days to come as pressures Undoubtedly, mount against Christians in this strange country of ours that seems so determined to reject the very faith that has meant so much to our land and given us so much that is good. And maybe that's going to be a message for future times. Don't suffer as a wrongdoer, but if anyone suffers as a Christian because of his or her faithfulness to Jesus Christ, don't be ashamed. Or don't be cowed, but as the ESV has it, glorify God in that name. However, of the three uses of the word, I want to concentrate on this first use of the term found in Acts eleven twenty six. 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And from that verse, I want to speak of the origin of the name, the aptness of the name, and then the challenge of the name why the name was chosen, what it says about Christianity, and what it means for us. So, first of all, the origin of the name. Here we are in the ancient city of Antioch, on the map there, it's about uh, halfway up on the right-hand side, if we can use uh, very detailed geographical terms, uh, uh, and It's important, I think, that we should not think that Antioch was some little village, sort of uh, a a first century well bank where we live, which is a tiny little village near Brote Ferry. Rather, it was not even a a borough, but it was a large city, a cosmopolitan city of some half a million souls, uh, about the size of Edinburgh really, and in that ancient world only Rome and Alexandria were larger. So Antioch was one of these places where if the gospel could be established there, it would be, it would be very significant in itself for that city, but it would also be a kind of strategic base for further advance. And Acts 11 tells the exciting story of the formation of the church there in that city. Verse 19, if we look at that again, points out that it was as a result of persecution, the persecution in connection with Stephen, that some people were scattered and travelled as far as Antioch. It was that time of persecution that became a springboard for the advance of the gospel. The famous Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote about his experiences It was only when I lay there on the rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. It was gradually disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart." Actually, that reminds us of what Jesus said about uh, sin coming not from, the, from outside, but from inside the heart of fallen human beings. And this, that is why, listen to this remarkable statement from that scene of Siberian suffering, I look back on my years in prison and say, bless you prison for having been in my life. that is a very remarkable statement indeed. And and maybe in different uh, ways, different circumstances, there are times that we could think of when rotten things happened. It was terrible. We would never have chosen it. But when you look back, you realise that however undesirable it was at the time, it has helped to make you stronger, wiser perhaps than you might have been. But here in these days, God turned that situation of persecution to good. And when you think about it, the martyrdom of Stephen must have been a dreadful thing. Stoning must have been a terrible way to die. Although the record says, it's back a few chapters in Acts 7, verse 55... Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And it says, as they hurled the rocks down on him, he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So like the master in whose name he was being martyred, but absolutely awful. And also, of course, it was the first Christian martyrdom. And did any Christian in these days think that following Jesus was meant to lead to an easier life? Or that the cause of Christ was going to take over the world in a fortnight? To see such a stalwart as Stephen, done to death, must have troubled many people. And maybe even disturbed the faith of some. And Acts 8 Acts 8 goes on to say, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Was this going to be the fulfillment of Acts 1 and 8? About, you know, the text that says, You shall be my witnesses in in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then away to the ends of the earth. And now Acts 11 and 19 says those who had been scattered by that persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And in Antioch, a remarkable thing happened that could easily slip us by actually because it's so obvious to us now that some people preach the gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jews. And chapters 10 and 11 there are taken up with the story of the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius and the realization that the gospel wasn't just a Jewish affair but that it was a message for people of all kinds and of all races but still and verse 19 here still and all when they first came to Antioch it says initially they told the message only to Jews but Verse 20, some spoke to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So that martyrdom of Stephen and the subsequent persecution of the church, so awful, so dreadful, but one of the results of it in the overruling providence of God was this wonderful step forward for the gospel. They told the people of Antioch. The NIV uh, translates the last part of verse 20, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The ESV actually uses the word preaching. And that Greek word has the, has the root evangel at its heart. The good news about Jesus. And of course the gospel is just that, isn't it? It's good news. It's not, not just good advice about what we should do. It's good news of what God has done for us in Christ. That Jesus who came to take our sins upon his sinless shoulders. That Jesus who conquered death by his resurrection from the dead that Jesus who says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And then when the Jerusalem church heard that amazing things were happening up there in Antioch, they thought that they'd better send a delegation to suss out the situation, to, to use that theological expression, and they made the inspired choice of Barnabas, one of the great figures of the early church, one described by one commentator as the man with the biggest heart in the church. And then notice what it says in verse 23. When he arrived, he saw the evidence. What evidence? The evidence of God's grace not only convincing Jews to put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah, but convincing Gentiles to put their faith in him as well. And just as Peter, in chapters 10 and 11, found that he just could not argue with what God was clearly doing, so Barnabas here realized that something bigger was going on than anything that any of them had ever expected. When he arrived... And saw the evidence of the grace of God, it says, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord. Which is, I think, just what Barnabas would do if he walked in here today, in our different world of today. Even if it's countercultural in 21st century Britain, even if people make fun of Christ and of Christianity. Even if standing up for Jesus might be costly in terms of prestige and even in these days employment, to remain faithful to the Lord. And there's another thing that Barnabas did. Verse 25, actually, in a way it's a detail, but it's perhaps one of the most significant verses in the whole of the New Testament, where it says, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He realized that help was needed, and to whom should he turn but to Saul of Tarsus. And as I say, what a a significant moment that is in the life of the church, because of course that Saul became Paul the apostle, apostle to the Gentiles, the one who spent his enormous energies in the advance of the gospel in the ensuing years from Antioch as his base and then all these famous missionary journeys. Something like nine years had elapsed since Saul's own encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and now he was ready to embark on what was going to be his life's work. And we read here, so for a whole year, Barnabas (laughs) and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And then this text, which verse 26, which tells us of the origin of the name Christian. There is a Scripture Union video. Do you remember videos? Uh, these quite big things. That, yeah, um, which I used to use with things like Boys Brigade's Bible Class or something, in which the, there's a storyteller called Philip Sherlock who uh, was telling of the day when uh, Saul was going along in Antioch along the street and he was met by somebody what, what would you call a person from Antioch? Antiocher Antiochin or maybe just Ante for short and he met in with this person going along the street and then there's a little bit of interchange of dialogue this is a thing in which Philip Sherlock, he, he's a solo it tells the whole story without any other actors involved in it at all. And this is how the little interchange goes. I know you, don't I? Said a man outside the city baths one day. Do you? Said Saul. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 don't, don't tell me. You're you're from the chariot races. No, 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 you're from the theatre, yeah? No, wait a minute, I know, yeah, you was the bloke that was giving that speech yesterday in the marketplace by my soul. Yeah, you're one of them, cri- what? Pardon, said Paul. One of them, what? Yeah, yeah, you know, after your bloke, Jesus Christ. Oh, oh, you mean Jesus Christ, said Saul. Yeah, that's the bloke. My next door neighbour, he's one of your lot. He never shuts up about him. Christ, Christ did this for me. Christ did that for him. So we call him a Christian. It fits, doesn't it? Yes, said Saul. I like it. Which is how Philip Sherlock tells the, that's his sort of version of the story. The origin of the name, it was a nickname. Antioch apparently was a great place for nicknames. It had a, a visit from one of the Roman emperors, the Emperor Julian. And uh, people uh, apparently saw he, he had a little uh, beard and they him, nicknamed him the goat. I don't know if uh, Cotebridge is a place for Nicknames as well. Where I used to live in the northeast, there are certain places where people would hardly know you by your proper name because everybody has a, a nickname, a by name, or in fact uh, you probably remember it from school days as well. Teachers all had nicknames, didn't they? I don't know if we've got any teachers here, but did teachers ever know that they, um, they must have done that they had nicknames? Like one of my. Uh, my English teacher actually was called Mr. Heron so it was Kipper that all the the kids used to call him as a, a nickname but that's the origin of the name found only in these three places in the New Testament first called Christians in Antioch more of this and you'll be making me a Christian if anyone suffers as a Christian of course there were plenty of other names all of which are instructive and significant. Acts 2.47 calls them simply those who were being saved. Chapter 6, verse 1, just disciples. That word in the text here, which means learners. In chapter 9, verse 13, when Ananias was told to go and see Saul, do you remember his protest? I have heard of the the harm that this man has done to your sins. the normal New Testament word for believers. Again, it's sometimes just that, believers, sometimes it's brothers, even the Nazarenes, all sorts of names. And here in this text we find that surprisingly, the name which has come to be the most commonly used name of all wasn't even chosen by the followers of Jesus himself, but a name fastened onto them by other people. So, having uh, thought about that from the or- about the origin of the name, let's go on to the aptness of the name. There's the, the, it's very significant that the people of Antioch latched on to the name of Christ. Somebody put it this way: Antioch named these people by what Antioch saw in them. That's pretty good, isn't it? Antioch named these people by what Antioch saw. In them marvelous that the people saw Christ in his followers, not a code of morality, although obviously the, the gospel has moral implications. not some kind of secret society that kept themselves to themselves or kind that, uh, uh, kind described by somebody's statement that the lives of some Christians, with their lack of support for mission, And lack of desire to be witnesses might make it sound as if Jesus' original commission was to go out into all the world and keep your head down and don't open your mouth if you can possibly help it, which is not actually what Jesus said at all. And they didn't see in these people a religion even, although, of course, the Christian religion was destined to outlive all of these people in these days and even these proud Roman emperors who uh, thought that they ruled the world in fact I, I often recall hearing Richard Bewes in a prom praise concert once talking about all these emperors who thought that they were supreme and, uh, uh, and he said they, would, they could never have imagined that for centuries to come people would name their children after the followers of Christ you know names like Andrew and James and Thomas and so on while their names, the names of these proud Roman emperors would be reserved for their household pets like Caesar and Nero and such like. No, the people of Antioch saw people not following a code of morality or a secret society, members of a new religion. They saw people who belonged to Jesus. People who worshipped and loved Jesus. People who served and sought to introduce others to him. Of course, there were the two sides to it, weren't there? They spoke about Jesus in words, and their lives spoke of Jesus. I'm sure that that uh, storyteller was right in imagining a resident of Antioch saying, my next-door neighbor, it's, it's Christ did this for him, and Christ did that for him. Because these people were eager to testify in words, To the difference that Christ was making and the difference that Christ could make to the lives of any others who would turn to him in repentance and faith. They spoke of Christ. Of course they did. And in the second place they also lived for Christ. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch not only because they spoke about Christ but because there was something of Christ evident in their lives. And that was true, not only in the so-called sunny days, but in the days when things were tough, like in the aftermath of the stoning of Stephen, for example. I once read about a minister who was distressed because his teenage son had cut himself off from the church and from the Lord. And then that minister's wife became ill, and she was seriously ill, suffered a lot, and eventually died. And sometime later, the son's life took a dramatic turn, and he announced that he had become a Christian. And the explanation he gave was that it wasn't any of his father's sermons that had led to his conversion. He said, it was the silent sermon my mother preached as she bore her suffering. And I'm sure many could echo that kind of sentiment, whether it was through a time of suffering or whatever, but something in somebody else's life made an impact, had an effect. So the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That very fact speaks of the witness they bore both by their words and by their lives. To them, Jesus was not just an inspiring figure from the past, a great teacher who had suffered a horrible death. For them, he was much more than that. He was their saviour, their redeemer, their Lord, their master, their friend, their guide in difficult times, their strength in testing times, their hope for future times. In everything, it was Christ at the centre, in their faith, their worship, their prayer, their fellowship, their life, everything. When I was a, a, a student, one of the summer jobs that I had was in Edinburgh was in what was then called PT's. I don't know if anybody knows Edinburgh in these days. Patrick Thompson's, a big department store in Edinburgh. And there was an elderly employee there, or as I recall now, he seemed to be elderly. Although, when I look back on it, he must have been younger than I am now when I'm telling this story. Uh, But he was uh, called, his name was Mr. Kuniki. uh, Because in these days, everybody was called Mr. something, or Mrs. something, or Miss somebody. But uh, he also had a nickname. He was affectionately known as Peter the Pole. And there was another man in that store, a Mr. Anderson. And as I say, everybody was known. I don't know what his Christian name would have been, actually. But just Mr. Anderson, who was known as a Christian. And if ever Mr. Anderson seemed to do something that, you know, wasn't along the path of Christian duty, let's say, something not worthy, Mr. Kaniki would say, you should love other people. You are a Jesus Christ man. That's actually what he said. I, I remember from the time I wrote it down. You shouldn't do that. You are a Jesus Christ man. That's exactly what was happening here in Antioch. By the choice of the name to characterize these followers of the Lord. that They were, they were disciples and saints and brothers and believers and all the rest. But the best and most apt name for them was Christians because everything in their life and their faith centred in Christ. The origin of the name, the aptness of the name and the last thing is the challenge of the name because clearly that's that's the message that comes from it. The challenge that comes out of that text is this. Listen to this and think about this. If the people, not of Antioch now, but the people of Coke Bridge or Brothy Ferry were to be asked today to invent a name for us, what would it be? Do you think? Churchgoers? Maybe? Which is fair enough, up to a point, because Christians go to church. Bible bashers? Depends what you mean. By that term, I suppose. Fair enough if it means we believe in the Bible. I I suppose not so good if it means trying to ram it down other people's throats. Religious people, I hope more than that. Fundamentalists, again, all right if that word means standing on the fundamentals, but of course the word has come to be used to designate fanatic or extremist. What term would they use? Wouldn't it be wonderful if it were the name Christian? If there was something about God's people that reminded them of God's Son, Son, of Christ. And shouldn't that be our prayer actually in the the old uh, uh, chorus, the old song, we got it up that says, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wondrous compassion and purity O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine, till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Let that be our prayer. Some time ago, there was an article in a Christian magazine about Christians in what was then called the Soviet Union. And there was a a particular man called Kozlov, who was a criminal who was imprisoned in a Soviet prison, but later he became a Christian and later still a church leader. And this is how he looked back on that time in the prison. He wrote, Among the general despair, while prisoners like myself were cursing ourselves, the camp, the authorities, while we opened up our veins or our stomachs or hanged ourselves, the Christians, often with sentences of 20 to 25 years, did not despair. One could see Christ reflected in their faces. Their pure, upright life, deep faith and devotion to God, their gentleness and their wonderful manliness became a shining example of real life for thousands. These were people of whom their fellow prisoners would have said they recognized them as Christians, even there in prison. And the text is a reminder of the central place that Christ himself should have and must have. Well, in various areas, in our, in our belief, because Christianity is nothing if not self-centered, everything, nothing but Christ-centered, everything in Christianity centers in him. That's the whole point, isn't it? It's not about what we think of God, what we think God must be like, but about what God has made known to us. He has revealed himself the central place that Christ should have in our church. Because of course the church is nothing if not the church of Jesus Christ. The church that exists to worship and glorify him, to love and serve him, to help others to come to know him. And in our living, because what is Christianity if it is not following Jesus? Not a matter of just being a decent citizen and so on, a matter of following Jesus Christ and seeking to be more like him. And in our witnessing as well, because what is witness but the endeavour to bring others not just to church, although that might be a step on the way, not just to respectability or anything of that kind, but to Christ himself, to a living faith in him. In these early days then, Unbelievers looked at the church and they saw people who reminded them of Jesus. And shouldn't we say may that be so today as well. Let's pray that it may be so. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Well let's pray about that ourselves now. Lord, we thank you for all that is recorded of these exciting and wonderful days of the early church when the gospel was growing and advancing in that world. And we thank you for this wonderful instance of the name that was developed because of what people saw in the followers of our Master. And Lord, we pray, we are challenged by that thought of about what name people would choose today And we pray that there may be much of Christ himself about the lives of of his people in our beliefs and in our church, in our living, in our witnessing, that it may all center in Jesus Christ himself. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to show forth something of that beauty of Jesus. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me all his wondrous compassion and purity. O thou spirit divine, all our nature refined, till the beauty of Jesus be seen in us. May it be so, Lord, and may your word bear fruit in our lives. For Jesus Christ's sake and in his name we ask it. Amen.